<laughs> Hello. 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 Booking. This is Nathan Alberson, your humble and obedient host. I'm here with Pastor Jake Menzel. How are you doing, Jake? Pretty good. How are you, Nathan? I'm doing fantastic, sir. Thank you for asking. I am also here with Brandon Chastine, PhD, ABD. D. <laughs> Baby. What's the ABD stand for? Dissertation. Oh, yeah, dissertation. <laughs> dissertation. All but. All but. All but. Dissert- all but. Oh, does the ABD really stand for all but? Yeah. All but <laughs> Mr. All but himself. <laughs> New nickname. Brandon Chestine and Jake Menzel, of course, the pastor who is a master of reading. So I thought, guys, that maybe we could talk about Dostoevsky today. Oh, yeah. It's the special episode, Pterodactyl. <laughs> wow. I guess we don't have to talk about Dostoevsky. It's a special episode today. Yeah. <laughs> Woohoo. All right. Today's special episode, we're going to be talking about some of the our favorite books from our childhood, the books that helped form us and make us who we are, or maybe just books that we enjoyed. We're going to offer you a window into our soul. So let's get right into it. We're going to count down our top five, each of us. We're going to do a top five. We're going to all do our fives, and we're all going to do our fours. It's going to be one of, the, one of those kinds of things. So let's get right to it. Jake, you're number five. My top five countdown goes sort of chronologically as I grow up and develop. At least that's the way that I thought about it. So my number five is The Chronicles of Narnia by C.S. Lewis. It's the whole series, if I'm allowed to do that. When I was in third grade, I had a teacher. I switched schools. Um, My dad and stepmom got married, and uh, I had a teacher that uh, started reading aloud to us uh, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And I was captivated by it. It it came sort of at a a critical time in my life where I needed an escape and a a healthy one. And so I I really loved The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Is it fair to say that it saved you from drugs? (laughs) No, it's not fair to say that. I'm sorry. Maybe. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> You're really fishing for something here. <laughs> I just wanted the audience. looking for my dirty drug pass? <laughs> we'll get into Jack Kerouac later. Then. Yeah, then we'll talk about Jake's dirty drug pass. <laughs> so I, I managed to get my convince my dad to buy me the whole series, and I read through them. You said that, third grade? Age. Yeah, third grade. So how old are third graders? Eight or nine, I think. Eight or yeah. nine. Did yeah. you read before that? Were you a reader? Well... I can't remember being a reader. I I fell in love with stories when I was little. My grandfather used to tell stories all the time. We, he used to take little golden books and then riff off of them and do great voices. And it got to the point where I felt like I had every story memorized, and yet it was never the same every time he told it. So mm. that was a lot of fun, and that, I think, really primed the pump for me. Loving stories and loving books, I was just... Whenever we went over to Grandma and Grandpa's house, that's all I wanted was to sit in his lap or sit on the floor and just have him tell stories. He did voices. He had a fantastic, deep, rich voice. So, and the best story was always Jack and the Beanstalk because of the the range. He had a really, like I said, a deep voice, and so he could go down into the fee-fi-fo-fums, and that was always really exciting as a kid. And so what was it about Narnia that spoke to you? It was just so rich and um, uh, it I hadn't I had never at, at that point in my life entered into any kind of imaginative world that was as so colorful and so so rich and so alive um and wholesome. And What do you mean wholesome? Well, I, I'm not sure I could put a finger on, on on it at least at the time. It just it was I loved the Pevensey kids. I loved their development. I sympathized with their weakness. I saw myself in Edmund. I uh, really wanted to be like Peter the High King. 
I loved the. I just loved the story. I loved the uh, the battle against uh, of good versus evil and good triumphing in in the end, overcoming insurmountable odds. And and then as I went through the series, I really just liked. Uh, my favorite, I remember very clearly, being Voyage of the Dawn Treader, and a lot of that was just all the different worlds I got to visit, ship on the sea, you know. I can still, to this day, conjure up the images of, you know, what the sea looked like, what the ship looked like, what the characters looked like, what the duffel puds looked like, what what the mer people underneath the sea, how clear it was all the way down. All, all of those uh, images... I still have in my head from being a little eight or nine year old boy, just completely captivated. And uh, so that was <laughs> to to be really cheesy. It, it was it was the wardrobe door into the world of of literature for me. Mm-hmm. Understanding that literature could be a place where where I could escape and I could uh, really just from a lot of the drama of my life and in in some ways be nurtured. Mm-hmm. Um, Were you conscious of the stories as allegory at that point? No, no, I I wasn't. Did you grow up in a Christian home? I went to church um, pretty faithfully with my parents before they divorced, and then after that, you know, here and there. And so, you know, it wasn't like, you know, maybe a lot of people listening to this read C.S. Lewis because they grew up in Christian homes, homeschool homes, and it was given to them as sort of like a safe Christian a safe Christian literature. It wasn't ever given to me that way. It was just something I stumbled upon. It may be that my, that my third grade teacher was a Christian, and that's why she read that book to us. But I, I just never understood it that way. I just, I loved the characters. I loved the stories. I loved the worlds that that were created. They were bright and they were colorful. The thing that I specifically loved about Narnia is, and my mom read them to us in a Christian homeschool type situation. She, she. Uh, she read the Narnia books to us growing up, and the unfolding of reading them in the order they were written was brilliant. And if you're a parent out there, do not let whoever is out there screw up the order and make you do it chronologically because it's dumb. Yeah, that's the order that I read them in. And I just think the set I bought ordered them that way. Ordered them wardrobe, Caspian, yeah, Dawn yeah. Treader, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. Silver Chair. I'm going to say the order so everyone knows what comes Which one should go last? Is it Horse and His Boy and then Magician's Nephew and then Last Battle? Yeah. That is the correct order. And that's the way it should be read. That's the way it should be read. Yeah. I was so excited about those books. I really uh, wanted my dad to read them. So really uh, – I remember I finished them and I put them on his nightstand and would always ask him about them until he, I think, made made them disappear. <laughs> There are some books that I read or read and wanted to hide. I didn't want anyone else to read them. I wanted it to be my secret. And then there are some books that you just want to share with everyone and you want to force your parents to read them and your girlfriend or whatever it is. You just I don't know what the difference between those kinds of books are. There's there's certain books that speak to you in such a way that it almost feels like blasphemy that anyone else would even be able to read it. But... uh, Narnia is one of the ones that you want to share. It's funny. I I did not read Narnia or have Narnia read to me when I was young. I think the first time I found out about C.S. Lewis was when I was around 12 or 13, maybe. So, yeah, very different perspective. Yeah, I'm going to go ahead and say my number five, which is Narnia. Whoa. Nice. Um, I'm going to actually cheat even more than you. Well, first of all, what's your favorite? What's the best Narnia book and what's the worst Narnia book? From a shaping standpoint as a kid, it is probably the inverse. I loved Don Treader the most. I, I liked, I would say, probably The Silver Chair the least. And probably if I were to go back and revisit it, I would suspect that it might be the opposite. But mm-hmm. I don't know. It's been I, a while since I've read him. I loved the... Horse and his boy, I thought was amazing. And the magician's nephew was great. Just the idea of all the different worlds with all the different pools and all the different worlds that they don't get to go to. You know, just the idea that there's this whole universe out there of parallel universes was a fun. I think that was my first kind of. The creation. Yeah. At the end. Yeah, everything. And Uncle Andrew's hilarious. Um, Everything about the magician's nephew is just a great book. And the Uh, witch is 
terrifying. Oh, yeah, she's fantastic. And the whole idea of when he gets to the bell and he's he's tempted to ring it and he knows he shouldn't and then he thinks he's going to go through his whole life, you know, thinking what would have happened if I had rung that bell. That's been a powerful one for me. As That's probably my favorite Lewis allegory. I don't tend to like allegory. Wardrobe's one of my least favorite because it's so on the nose with mm-hmm. its Aslan is Jesus and then he dies. And it doesn't even really work as a good allegory if you break it down, which it f- kind of forces you to think think in parallel. And then the parallel doesn't work, which I don't like. But uh, but I love that idea. Of, Lewis does have a lot of good insight and the, the moment – has resonated through the ages that I come back to is the idea of when I'm tempted, I always think I'm never going to get this chance again. I'm always going to think what if, what if, and it's stupid, but uh, it was nice of Lewis to have that, that insight into me. Um, The other thing, and I I said I was going to cheat even more than you. The reason I'm cheating even more than you is because I'm doing Lewis slash I'm doing Narnia slash the Hobbit. And (laughs) (laughs) okay. (laughs) The reason being, here's here's my rationale. They both did the exact same thing for me. And the reason that they're on this list doesn't have anything to do at, with anything of what you just said. Uh, everything that you just said is wonderful about Narnia and also wonderful, incidentally, about The Hobbit. But the thing that most affected me and most nurtured me and that has stayed with me from those books specifically is something very specific that the authors do, which is they speak directly to you. They basically break the fourth wall. You know, Lewis, or, yeah, you know on the first yeah. page of The Hobbit, J.R. Tolkien stops and says, now, what, what is a hobbit? I suppose you you probably don't really know exactly. You know, and then later when Gandalf shows up, he says, you know, now, if you knew even a quarter of what there is to know about Gandalf, you know, if you knew as much as I do, and I, I don't even know that much, but then you'd be prepared for all kinds of wonderful things. Yeah. Um, all the I, great children's writers do that. Kipling yeah. does that. My best beloved. Yeah. 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 And it's just the fact that an adult, basically, that uh, like a daddy would would talk to me, you know, on, on, on a somewhat, not on an equal footing, I guess, but just on a, hey, let me explain this to you. You know, what's here's, you know, I've been using this word hobbit. That meant a lot to me. And I think it's influenced, influenced my writing and influenced the kinds of things that I like to read. I like things that are playful with form. I like things I like. I like for better or for worse. I like stuff that's meta. Um, I hate the fact that we have to call it meta. But I like I like when people break the fourth wall. I like when they break outside of forms. I like I like that kind of stuff. And I think that love I owe directly to those guys just kind of saying, you know what, this is a book and, you know, I'm just going to, I'm just going to talk to you and, you know, tell you what a hobbit is, tell you what a wizard is, tell you, tell you what's going on, explain how, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to, there will be commentary, you know, I will say, you know, there once was a boy named Eustace, uh, what's his, uh, Eustace Clarence Scrub. Uh, and he almost deserved it. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's like the, the right of the author and their, their ability to assert the right of the author to just have an opinion on things. And to explain things is powerful. And I've always resented the fact that, you know, a certain kind of what what you're taught as a perhaps you should be taught it as a middle schooler. But I always resented being taught it as a middle schooler that, you know, you're not supposed to do things like that. The author, you know, the author's voice, the author's opinions should be hidden, should be pulled back. You know, you shouldn't pull back the curtain. I've always liked seeing who's operating the controls and why and what they're trying to do and enjoyed those kinds of books. So that specifically mm. is why those books are on the list for me. Can I add another one in the category that's weird? Yeah. Another weird association, a squirrel nutkin by Beatrix Potter. Yes. And here's why, because these books for me, I don't remember when I read them, but what they introduced to me outside of what you guys have said was, um, this sense of otherworldly danger mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. needs to be taken seriously. Yeah. So in um, The Magician's Nephew, it's when they go into that room with all the statues. Yeah. And then in The Hobbit, it, it's, of course, the fight that's going on in the in the Mirkwood. Yeah. And then with Beatrix Potter, it's when he faces the owl, mm-hmm. right? And it's this, it's this danger that, to a child, it's terrifying, but also lets you know that evil really does exist, but can be confronted by fathers and by yourself. Yeah, yeah, that's good. What's the quote everybody knows from Chesterton about dragons? Fairy tales don't tell children the dragons exist. Children already know that. 
it tells them that dragons can be killed. Yeah, something like something that. Something like that. I, all right, Brandon, I guess we've both said our <laughs> our number fives. Yeah, my number five, different, but it's uh, Charlotte's Web by E.B. White. And this book did a lot of the same things Narnia did for you guys. It opened my imagination and my love towards books. I actually, my mom read this book to us, and Mm -hmm. it made me fall in love with stories. I don't know quite how to put my finger on it. You can get, it can sound strange or metaphysical, but there's something beyond just the words. It's just the story, the warmth of the farm, the animals, the Mm -hmm. smell of it. It's the way that a storyteller can make something vivid and real for you. Mm -hmm. And it's the characters, Fern, Fern, her brother, um, Charlotte. So... He introduced to me, E.B. White. I'm not going to start, unlike when I did Don Quixote. Called it. <laughs> he was the one who wrote it. Don Quixote was the one who wrote Don right. Quixote. Charlotte, Charlotte's Web wrote uh, one of the greatest children's right. novels. <laughs> yeah, White, he introduced to me just the beauty of a good story. It's a mm. simple story. But it means so much to you. And what's, what's the pig's name? Wilbur. Wilbur. Wilbur, yeah, yeah. I knew it was Wilbur. I didn't want to say it and get it wrong, but yeah. I did remember all these years that it was Wilbur. It means so much to you when, you know, the ending. <laughs> when the ending happens. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's heartbreaking. <laughs> yeah. And to a child, it really is. It, oh, yeah. it opens you to a world of emotions that are beyond your world, mm-hmm. which is what good literature does. It, it's a part of what it does is it brings to you experiences that you want to have without that story. And so it, that's what it did for me. But also in my number four, I won't say what it is yet, but it's along the same lines. A lot of nostalgia for me mm-hmm. because it's just my mom, she would read these stories to us and I have a lot to thank her for. Yeah. So, Thank you, Brandon's mom. Yeah, thank you, mom. I guess we all, yeah. all you podcast liter- listeners have Brandon's mom a lot to thank her for. <laughs> Round of applause for my the, mom. Uh... <laughs> Uh, you talking about Charlotte's Web and your mom actually makes me think of my fifth grade teacher, uh, Libby Culliver, who I hated, absolutely hated her, but I didn't. I, I hated slash respect her, respected her, but she read to us all the time and she made us read books that were beyond us and uh, really challenged us and, uh, you know, in sort of a similar way, not, not quite the same way. I have a lot. I owe a lot to her. She read Charlotte's Web to us, too. Well, I should throw myself under the bus and say I hated my mom reading, <laughs> reading Narnia, to, Narnia to us a lot of the times. You know, I mean, it's like, oh, boy, we have to sit down. You know, we have to we have to be here for this reading. I, I ended up loving it. I always got into it by the end, but I wasn't a perfect kid. And, I, you know, the warm glow of nostalgia makes me remember some of those times maybe a little bit better than they actually um, – you're, you're talking about Mrs. Culliver and the fact that you didn't, like, appreciate the – gold that she was giving you at the time just uh thank you to all the moms and mrs cullivers that pushed through with a bunch of bratty kids like us yeah um i I did love charlotte's web i haven't read it for a long time i hardly remember it but uh it it evokes a warm feeling in the the cockles of my heart yeah which is what you as a child that's what you want with a story is something that'll be warm and that's what i hope my kids get when they listen to stories so Mm. The other thing that he introduced as a child, I don't, I didn't really appreciate the simplicity of his language. Mm-hmm. But there is something to the style of a good storyteller, someone who can tell a children's story well, you know, can write mm-hmm. other stories well. It's just because it needs to be simple and good, to the point, but also engaging, which is what you got with Lewis. He addresses you, first person, comes out of the story and talks to the child. Tolkien does it, and it's just so not just the story they're telling, but the way they tell it, the quality of the storyteller, and so that was there as well. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. Yeah, I think it's a real shame that a lot of a lot of the fairy tales that we get now are things that are commentaries or reflections. You know, you've got your wicked and your, you know, what would it be if the if the witch was the good guy? You've got those kinds of things uh, that are popular. No. Harry Potter. Harry Potter. That, that's what I think of is she's got a story that's okay, mm-hmm. but the storyteller can't tell it well. Yeah. I mean, the, the thing about all these kinds of stories that are popular now is that they insist on spelling so much out, on, on telling you so much about 
what good is, what evil is in their opinion, you know, what the great thing, I don't know what I'm trying to say. What I'm trying to say is the great thing about somebody like E.B. White or somebody like C.S. Lewis is that they paint a picture for you and they only give you the tip of the iceberg and there's a whole world of emotion and of feeling and of knowledge and of all this stuff um, that's underneath it that they managed to evoke with simple language and that's powerful more people should strive for that kind of thing especially in children's writing you know if you're able to do a simple thing that can be enjoyed on a simple level and also be enjoyed on a profound level i mean obviously that's the trick that's that's what everybody's been striving for since the dawn of time but um it's powerful when it's done well uh do you guys still enjoy reading narnia charlotte's web you read it to your kids yeah, I've read most of Narnia to my kids. It's been a couple of years. And yeah, I enjoy it still. I think it still holds up as nice children's literature. It's not, in some ways, it takes me back, you know. Does it do anything for you on an adult level, do you feel? I think it's okay, maybe, if the answer is no, but I'm just, I'm just wondering, does it evoke any of the, that terror or wonder or anything like what you felt oh, as a kid? Oh, nothing like what I felt as a kid. Well, sure, no, obviously uh, it'd be different, but I mean, um, is, there, is there some trace of that? Well, it's... Uh, yeah, there's a trace of it for sure, and it's still enjoyable. And you know, I still love the find that I love the characters. I still find that I love the worlds that he created. I, yeah. The stories are good. The imagery is good. The the lessons are good. And there are certain things that you don't move you as a child that do, as an adult. I, when I read The Magician's Nephew to my children, I'm trying to remember what it was, the guy with the horse at the end when he sees creation. And then he says, who would have ever thought that there could be such things in the world mm. as he's watching it? Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, so it's, they still move me. I've read Charlotte's Web with my kids, and it's still a good story. It holds up. It doesn't move me the way it did as a child. Sure. But, uh, and it's, it's great watching my children hear the story and get introduced to these same characters and storylines that I knew I loved when I was their age. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right. Number four. Jake, number, what's your number four? Number four My pick number for... four is going to be the most awesome of all of our number fours okay, here. Okay, I um, bet. So right around the same time that I read uh, Chronicles of Narnia and sort of got introduced to the, the idea of stepping through the wardrobe, wardrobe door and escaping, um, we used to get these little magazines in school. I don't know if you guys ever got them where you part of some kind of book club and then you could order books and so everybody had the books that they were ordering oh sure so in my class you know the girls ordered like uh uh i was homeschooled so i don't know why i said oh sure yeah like (laughs) i have any idea what you're talking about scholastics yeah like the scholastics scholastics. ours was the christian book bureau or whatever those well so the girls ordered like uh i don't know boxcar children or something like that and then the dorky boys ordered like i don't know weird stuff and then, you know, the, the jockey guys that played sports, we ordered Goosebumps uh, by R.L. Stein. And so it was sort of like I, I didn't have oppor- many opportunities to, to get my hands on books to read except through that. And I was so hungry to uh, – I wanted to be cool. I wanted to be accepted. And so Goosebumps were like a socially acceptable book that I could I could read and, and get into and – just sort of as junk food to, to help me escape from whatever, you know, I'd get the latest Goosebump book and go home and just read it all in a day. And and so I, I don't know why Goosebumps makes the list, except it was just a big part of, the, especially that those years of, you know, second, third, fourth, fifth grade, I just spent a lot of my time trying to escape out of this world and uh, into other worlds. And so they were always there. And I, I never really uh, – I think I had some fun trying to figure out uh, – seeing how quickly I could figure out what the twist was going to be. It wasn't like I ever thought they were great stories or was it ever – I can't remember any of them. It was just sort of junk food from my mind. But um, yeah. but they were there and they were a, a part of my childhood. And uh, my my parents and grandparents caught on to the, me liking them and my grandparents – bought me Goosebumps books probably until I was in high school. Wow. <laughs> and it's just kind of 
went to a box somewhere. But um, like somehow your your grandparents just got the idea that that was your thing. So suddenly it was, yeah, it was goosebumps like here, goosebumps there. Yeah, and Christmas it was like the latest ones. You know, they found them for me. That's and, funny. Yeah, goosebumps were banned in my house. Is that right? We were not allowed to read goosebumps. Yeah, we probably. And so I remember read. I would take trips to North Carolina yeah. to see my cousins, and they had goosebumps. And so I read one once. Oh, yeah? Yeah. It was the one about the uh, ventriloquist dummy. Oh, yeah. It was terrifying. <laughs> I, wish, I wished I hadn't read it. <laughs> you know, I don't remember be, um, <coughs> being scared by any of them. The only one that well, that sticks out in my mind is there was one about what? Uh, you were the jock. You right? were the jockey. I was the <laughs> not jock, right? I was the guy who uh, ordered all the dorky books. <laughs> well, the one that sticks out in my mind uh, was was Sorry. psychologically terrifying. Was there was uh, some dad in a in a basement, and he was experimenting with like making plants come to life or whatever, and. Like cloning himself with plants or something. Yeah. And so then you got into the psychological drama by the end. There are like three or four versions of dad and which one's the real. And so a kid ends up like killing three, two or three of them. Man. And then, you know, like there's like a growing plant. It's just, no, I'm your dad. <laughs> you know, but that's sort of like psychological What's my real dad? You know, my yeah, dad, mm-hmm. I don't know what to do. You know, that so, that was that was frightening to me. Isn't that in one of the Star Trek movies? <laughs> yeah, I think so. He has to choose between the Kirks or something? <laughs> it's in so many bad sci-fi movies. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's, Stein's just completely formulaic. And the yeah. virtue of Stein is he can take the, the same formula and come up with a couple different twists and engage a third grader. Right. And... Yep. You know that that's valuable. I think I don't know the the other really nice thing. If I can like try to milk something positive out of my my <laughs> my, my young uh, prepubescent goosebumps addiction, we've already got it the was, pull quote for the one book that says <laughs> psychologically terrifying <laughs> Jake Menzel. <laughs> anyway, well, it was that uh, they were easy to read, mm-hmm. and I got addicted to the yeah. accomplishment of having read a book. Mm-hmm the satisfaction of having completed uh something and so that that in itself uh just sort of feeding that desire to read and to read books to the end and to finish them um probably had a a good effect yeah i i actually have my own goosebumps like books it was the trailblazer series (laughs) it was about missionaries (laughs) they were awful books and they were just cheap and silly and poorly written. But those are some of the few books I can remember staying up all night yeah. to read. Yeah. yeah. For hiding the light. Yeah. And I think you're right. It has to do with the act and the addiction to reading. I just would have, the, mine would have been the, the dump, the premier version of junkie horror Christian ver- was Frank Peretti when I was growing up. Oh, sure. Yeah. And he did a series for kids. I don't remember what it was called. It's kind of an Indiana Jones riff. Uh, I bet a lot of people that listen to this yep. will remember this. The if, weird, like, flying stingrays and stuff. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah it, is, it, it would always end with, like, you know, the bad guy getting disintegrated by some ancient trap. Or, you know, it was, very, it was just a total Indiana Jones ripoff with, like, Prayer. you have to have faith. And, yeah. <laughs> it was cheesy. Pray <laughs> that you don't get disintegrated by an ancient trap. Yeah, <laughs> it's funny how there's lame Christian versions of every stupid uh, pop culture. I'm sure thing. there's a lame Christian version of Goosebumps. Oh, there is. I mean, Frank Peretti was, was that to a certain extent, yeah. I think. He'd give you as much horror as he thought he could get away with. And that was the draw. You certainly weren't reading Frank Peretti because you wanted to learn a lesson about faith or yeah. prayer. What this makes me think of is uh, there's a quote maybe by C.S. Lewis in Surprised by Joy where he says that when you're young, like around six or seven, that's when your imagination is first awakened. Mm-hmm. And then you get into your dry spell from about eight to 11 where you just, you're a boy, mm-hmm. you know, and everything. And I, I had it in my own life. So yeah. It's not like I spent from one to now reading books that were worth reading. <laughs> right. I had probably you a f- didn't start till you were fifteen when you read number two on your list. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Whatever it was. There you go. <laughs> That'll be funny when you guys find out what number two is. The, the, the thing I, w- I would say two things. Number one, it, there is something kind of fun about the first time that you encounter a formula. A lot of times in my life, I wish I would have 
read the good version of that formula and been powerfully affected by it. Yeah. But most of the time, I read the crappy. Like the good, the best version of the whole "Is it your dad or isn't your dad?" is the Body Snatchers. That's that's a great classic horror story. If anybody out there wants to be terrified by the formula that Jake was terrified by, read the Body Snatchers. It's all about paranoia and that idea of your loved ones being something that uh so that's the one to read or if you want a great plant story day of the trifids i think uh i don't know but those 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 are the good uh those are the good versions yeah and when you when you read the ripoffs they do really take something away from the good ones they do but it's also you can't deny that the formulas are formulas for a reason and it's powerful wherever you encounter it and i don't think you necessarily have to be ashamed of I mean, you should be ashamed of reading Goosebumps, <laughs> but yeah. uh, you didn't know any better. Um, and we despise you. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. No, we don't despise you. I read, I've read more junk than that in my life. Yeah. Some of which is much more regrettable than Goosebumps. Like, and Frank, I've, like Frank Peretti. <laughs> Frank, like Frank Peretti, yeah. This present darkness. Bring it, Peretti. Uh, I think the, there is other, one other thing that I will say about that, which is that I always am so scornful when people say, you know, you, you see kids reading Twilight, Harry Potter, whatever it is that kids are reading now. I don't know what the new one is. Hunger Games was the most recent one that I was aware of, but I'm sure it's something else now. You see kids reading those and people say, you know, at least it's at least they're reading. And I say, okay, yeah, whatever. And, you know, they, they talk about how kids begin a lifelong love of reading through reading this, this junk. And I'm, I'm awfully scornful of that. But it, it does it does work. For, for a lot of people it does there's 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 a lot of people that read harry potter and it created a love of reading harry potter but mm-hmm. there are a goodly number of people and I, i'm thinking of specific people that read harry potter and it created a love of reading stuff that's better than harry potter so yeah. i don't know I, I don't want to excuse goosebumps if you're a parent don't let your kids read goosebumps no, don't, do don't do you know that's don't terrible. don't yeah. don't let your kids read junk just so that, make them read good stuff but don't <laughs> yeah the encouragement is that if they are drawn to junk in the future maybe they won't if they're drawn to junk, it's because they're hungry for something. Yeah, right. And you can shape and nurture their taste mm-hmm. by giving them good things. If you're a smart parent, you just have to figure out, you know, in Jake's case, maybe it was just simply the accomplishment of reading something that his friends, his jock friends, weren't going to make too much fun of him for. Surely there's a, there was a better book that somebody could have given you that your jock friends wouldn't have made fun of you and that would have made you feel accomplished. Uh, in my case, if I had been reading Goosebumps, or it would have been because I like weird fiction and supernatural stuff. And there's good supernatural stuff. There's bad supernatural stuff. There's good missionary stories. <laughs> okay. Anything else to say? Have we all done our... No, we no, haven't. No, sorry. None of us have done it. <laughs> what's, what's your number four? Well, my, my number four is not going to be a lot different than my number one. No, my number five. Okay. I can't count. We're going from five to one, I guess. <laughs> mine, mine, it's in the same vein. It's uh, Little House in the Big Woods mm-hmm. and Little House in the Prairie. Mm-hmm. Both of those together. Again. Not in the same vein as far as being junk. No, in the same vein as Charlotte's Web. Oh, I'm yeah, sorry. Yeah. I was being unclear. Yeah. Because really, throughout my childhood, my mom would read to us. And this was the other books that we loved as a family. This became, she read these three or four times out loud to us. Wow. And so we just... This really shaped my imagination, my love of probably even shaped the influence that Flannery O'Connor would have on me later on. I mean, my love of the South, my love of country and American lore. So <laughs> Your love of Southern Wisconsin and yeah. Minnesota. <laughs> no, weirdly as it is, just this... Uh, oh, I can't southern, quite put it yeah. together in my head how it would all connect, but... The story of this family of Paul and Ma, yeah. it was really, it was, it was good. Paul was a character you could love. Oh, I love. And you felt Ma. the love of the kids towards Paul. Yeah. And then also to go back to what you were saying, when I said about the danger, mm-hmm. I think it was in Little House on the Prairie where they are in their cabin and they can see the fires of the Indians over and they can hear their whooping and hollering and it's in the middle of the night. Mm-hmm. And I think Paul may be away. But a very similar thing, because I didn't, like I said, I didn't really read fantasy like Narnia until later on. And so that was my introduction kind of into that feeling. Mm -hmm. There are a lot of images I have from those books that I I still conjure up all the time. I find anytime there's a lot of snow, there's a blizzard. I think about the barn scene where the rope between the barn and the house or 
when I bring uh, candy home for my kids, I think about yeah. Pa bringing home, you know, a couple molasses. of minutes. Yeah. Yeah. And molasses, yeah. Because they make molasses candy, yeah. There's all these scenes that are very vivid and stand out. Mm-hmm. And was it, I guess it was C.S. Lewis when he was writing Narnia, he said the first, it started with a scene with that picture in his head of the, um, the lantern yeah. and the snow. Yeah. And that's how it all started. And he had the picture of Mr. Tumnus walking. And so a lot of these stories, they, they're narrative, but they also work by very creating a very vivid image in your mm-hmm. head. Brown paper packaging and yeah. smells. And yeah. Mr. Edwards coming in with the snow in his beard mm-hmm. and the tin cups they would get for Christmas with the peppermint in it. It's yeah. just the smells and the sounds yeah. and the feels. and Yeah. I haven't it's thought about those books for years. I, I haven't. I've not thought about any of that for a long time. We were read them as a kid. My favorite was the one about Alonzo, the um, farmer boy, because I didn't have to make excuses for it in my mind. It wasn't a girl's yeah. book; it was a boy's book. Because I wasn't an effeminate weirdo that liked a little, <laughs> little house, house <laughs> little house in the big woods. Um, no, I, I, I did love them all, but I wasn't. I couldn't. Being a man, I wasn't able to admit my love for for the little the, the ones that were specifically about Laura. Yeah. But I loved the one about Alonzo, and I remember I still remember the breakfast that Alonzo would eat before you know they'd have like these giant rashers of bacon, and like it'd just be insane. You know, like Alonzo would have like fifteen flapjacks and like four pounds of bacon and everything, and then he'd go out and work, and then they'd come back for lunch and have a. I still remember those meals very vividly. And when you yeah. were talking about the big woods. I remember that big woods like like it was a place. I mean, I'm picturing the picture in my mind that I had from when I was a kid, and it's yeah. very vivid. And I don't remember a lot of the incident in those stories. I remember some of the big things, like her sister going blind later on and stuff, yeah. but I don't remember a lot of the specific little things. But Yeah, I, I, I can't remember, remember the context in which I either read them or they were read to me i can't distinguish i mean one from another Mm -hmm. but i have scenes and details and images and sounds and smells that are almost minutiae it's not like any of the big stuff stuck it's just these little things these little descriptive it's just the it's the the dirt floor or it's the sod over the uh, the sod house or it's the you know the barn or it's the the candy, mm-hmm. Pa coming home with candy for the kids. Yep. Or... Yeah, I don't think I could tell you this story if mm-hmm. there isn't, if there really is a story. Well, there are incidents. I mean, I remember Alonzo. This might even just be from the TV series. I remember Alonzo has to go through the snow to get either get somebody out or get food to some. There are yeah. big things that happen. You know, her sister goes blind. I remember that. There are some things that have stuck with me. But yeah, Jake's right. It's a sense memory thing as much yeah. as, as anything. Yep. It's yeah. smells, it's sights, it's sounds that you associate with. It's just a whole a whole feeling. Yeah. Good pick. Excellent pick. Not quite as good as Goosebumps. But no, <laughs> no, not at all as good as Goosebumps. Right. My favorite little house is the one where Pa's experimenting with the plants, and yeah, <laughs> Laura has to kill oh, the different yeah. versions of Pa. <laughs> one of them screaming out, "It's me! It's me!" <laughs> she kills the wrong one. She kills the wrong one. Yeah, I think that's little house in the terror garden. <laughs> the terror garden. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. My number four is is going to tie into Jake's number four a little bit, although. I went straight to the master purely by accident. Edgar Allan Poe Mm -hmm. was somebody that I discovered in the absolute best way possible. Uh, We were a Christian family that wasn't allowed to read things like Goosebumps. We weren't allowed to watch the Smurfs because it had a magician in it. You know how evil those guys are. So we had a lot of stuff like that. A lot of the more supernatural stuff was kind of forbidden fruit and therefore, of course, attractive. Parents, it's okay to say no to things, but do realize that... The forbidden has an allure. The allure of the forbidden, as I will now dub it for the first time ever. In all history. In all history. (laughs) But I never really read horror stories or supernatural stories, and uh, they weren't really provided for my reading pleasure until I was reading ahead because I was a dorky kid like Brandon, I was reading ahead in my Elements of Literature textbook, uh, part of the homeschooling curriculum, I believe at the time. It would have been like fourth grade. And I was reading ahead, uh, just looking, you know, finding stories that were interesting and reading them because I was that much of a nerd um, and had that little of a life that I was reading ahead in my literature textbook for fun. 
And I came across the Telltale Heart. Yeah. Didn't know what it was. Had no idea who Egger. I mean, I probably knew the name. I mean, probably the name is what made me read it because I knew, oh, this is going to be interesting. And from the first moment, and I, it was late at night. I was in my bedroom all alone. I didn't have a flashlight or anything, but, you know, I was, I was by myself and I read this story and it just like, it, it terrified me. Mm-hmm. And just the idea of entering into this man's guilt, into the him murdering this old man for no reason and then the heart the beating of his hideous heart beneath the floorboards and the psychological terror of being drawn into a crime you know here i was just an innocent kid and suddenly i felt like real guilt i felt such guilt that i was ashamed of having read the story and i confessed it to my parents several days later you know i read the telltale heart and you know they didn't care um it was it was a profound reading experience and the perfect way to discover somebody like Edgar Allan Poe because I didn't know what I was in for. I'd never read anything like that, and it just blew my mind. It's really interesting. I think I had a very similar experience with the Telltale Heart and with Poe. I was different than you in that I wouldn't read ahead because I had already read things. I would never read what I was supposed to read because it was cool to not have read what you were supposed to read right. as part of our yeah. cool kid culture. We, we, did, right. we never read what we were right. supposed to read. Right, you're too busy beating up the Brandons and the Nathans. Yeah, That's, yeah, yeah, yeah but, <laughs> but, but secretly, secretly, right. I would then read everything else right. in the literature textbooks that wasn't assigned. And I, I think that must have been the context that I read The Telltale Heart in, and I had a very similar experience. It wasn't like late wasn't as poetic. It wasn't like late at night with the flashlight or anything like that. (laughs) But yeah, it was absolutely gripping, terrifying. Yeah, that's the one. I mean, that... And then it repulsed me. I mean, it did did what great horror literature is supposed to do, which is it... I didn't want it, and it was all I wanted. I wanted more of that forbidden fruit. And so I went out to the library and got a book of classic horror stories. So it had The Telltale Heart. It had all the classics by Poe. It had The Monkey's Paw. It had Sleepy Hollow, some M.R. James. I'm sure it had, uh, you know, Green Tea by Sheridan Le Fanu, all the kinds of stuff that always shows up in these anthologies. And I was hooked. And for better or for worse, (laughs) a lot of my life has been spent reading weird fiction, reading supernatural fiction, and it's all Edgar Allan Poe's fault. And Mm -hmm. one of the reasons I asked you guys earlier whether Lewis still holds up for you, whether you still get anything out of it, is because, as a matter of fact, Edgar Allan Poe doesn't do a thing for me anymore. I I, I have no need to ever read anything by Edgar Allan Poe again. And if I did, it would just be lame. Mm-hmm. But I'd still, I don't think that's because Poe is lame. I think it's because he was a master of creating a single effect. And once that effect is spent, you just don't have anything left. There's no interesting characters or dialogue. The descriptions are all purple as heck, you know. I mean, it's it's just, it's like there's nothing left once, you, once you've drained that primal power. So the images will stay with me until the day I die. The the, the blade swinging through the darkness yeah. and the guy having the, the rats gnaw off the or the, the, the guy in the House of Usher hearing his sister who's buried alive and he has the perfect hearing so he hears her scratching on the tomb and clawing her way out and then she appears mm-hmm. in the doorway. You know, that stuff will live with me forever, those images. But if I was going to sit down to enjoy some weird fiction it wouldn't be Edgar Allan Poe. There's a lot of people that are more fun and interesting to read now yep. and more scary, if that's what I'm in the mood for on a cold winter's night. But he was my he was my gateway drug into that world, for sure. It's interesting. Yeah, that resonates with my experience with Poe. I don't remember when I read him first, but my first story was The Pit and the Pendulum. Mm-hmm. And it was in my grandparents' house because they had these old um, Reader's Digest books that would cover specific authors, and mm-hmm. they had one on... And I opened up and read it and I associate it with their house to this day. They had this weird vent that went up Mm -hmm. that looked like shadows were coming down and (laughs) it was an older house, creaks and a grandfather clock. Mm -hmm. Sorry, sorry, Nana. (laughs) Yeah. And the pit and the pendulum, like you said, it was the rats and the filth and just the genius of the fact that Edgar Allan Poe had a pit and a pendulum, which is already good enough. 
But then the fact that he went an extra step and gave his readers real bang for their buck and had the guy get out of the trap by having rats eat off the... Good job, Edgar Allan Poe. Yeah, good job. And you're right, because you would think that you would encourage someone to read Edgar Allan Poe. But if they told you, like, as an adult, that was their favorite author... You would probably want to keep your dis- keep your distance. Right. There's no one more moronic than someone that's clinging to what was – not everything is designed to last or to have the same effect. Some things – I mean, I'll always yeah. owe Edgar Allan Poe. He's part of who I am and that's great. But I don't need to read him. I mean, uh, Me and Jake just watched the original Star Wars yeah. And we realized, you know what? We're 30-somethings now. We don't ever need to watch Star Wars A New Hope again. It doesn't do anything for us. It doesn't mean we've erased our childhood or destroyed what was valuable to us. It just means it it did its job in our lives, and it was a good job. Thank you, Star Wars. Thank you, Edgar Allan Poe. But it's okay to mature out of those things, I yep. think. Yeah. Number three for me is kind of like that. So my third well, book. Well, let's, let's hear about it. It's this book, Fantasties. <laughs> It's got this stupid cover. I wish. Can you guys Describe take a the picture? Cover. Put it on your Twitter. <laughs> Tweet it. It's got some really cheesy spirits and trees. It's got some goblins and a little gnome. It looks like, and this guy that looks really shocked at nothing. <laughs> well, very um, baroque looking. Mm-hmm. Very saturated in dark colors. Um, we will have a picture on the when this post goes up on warhornmedia.com. There will be a picture of Brandon's cover for you to look at. Find, you, definitely. This is going to make some of you out there who are like C.S. Lewis fanboys and go and read everything that he reads and loves it. Maybe a little upset that this doesn't do it for me anymore. But um, Fantasties, I, I guess I read it when I was about 12 or 13. I can't really remember. I had a good friend at the time. His name was Andrew Helms, and he loved C.S. Lewis, and he loved G.K. Chesterton. And so he told me that I needed to read Fantasties. And it's a, it's a weird book. It's about this guy who wakes up <laughs> in his room, and suddenly it's grass and flowers are growing. And he finds out that fairies inhabit the flowers. And then he goes on this journey where he realizes he owns a castle in this weird world. He meets the statue that Pygmalion made, and he falls in love with it, and then he starts to pursue it. And he meets this old weird woman in an, on, in an island who makes him choose between these four doors. He chooses the wrong one, and then he like collapses, and she tells him he has to leave. So it's all this weird fantasy <laughs> weirdness that doesn't seem to go anywhere, but there seems to be meaning beyond it mm-hmm. that you can't quite figure out. And like, and you... Just feel like there must be something beyond this book that you're supposed to know and you just can't get it quite. And that's what this book did for me. It, the only word I know that I would use all the time throughout high school and then early college was the transcendent. Mm-hmm. I was looking for the transcendent. And I just knew that there had to be something beyond and that poetry and literature could get you there somehow. Yeah, so that's what this book meant for me. It was, it was an introduction into a world beyond just storytelling where there might be meaning that was bigger than the story. Right. In the narrative that my life took, <clears throat> my attraction to this novel became my love for like Yeats and his poetry, which his early stuff is just, it's just weird Irish fairy poetry. It's beautiful. It's very musical in quality, but you know, Yeats did that on purpose so that you would feel as though there was something there, the resonating symbolism and you sound really smart and you think you're really smart when you pick up on it and you can see it and you can tell everybody else. And then the big thing that you can do is look down on everyone else because they're not reading it and they're not getting it and they don't feel the same way you do. Like I think C.S. Lewis said that he felt there was a yearning inside of him that nobody else had or something. Right. Eventually, you realize it's just crap. That's baloney. <laughs> Would you recommend uh, that somebody read that? Fantasties? Yeah. Sure. <laughs> After all that. Read that crap and baloney? <laughs> I mean, the thing with McDonald is he was not a good writer. Mm-hmm. His language is very purple. At length one night, suddenly, when this feeling of dancing came upon me, I bethought me of lifting one of the crimson curtains. I mean, that's just the sentence I took at random. Right. I bethought me of beating up the young you for... Yeah. I was was on your side when Jake was beating you up, but now now I'm holding you down. Jake are both beating me up. But there was some... I mean, there was a strange beauty to it in the natural world having this quality to it of the weird fairy quality. Someone who did it well would have been one of my favorite scenes is in the Hobbit. And we'll get a chance to talk about it more 
when the the elves keep having that banquet and the candles in the dark woods mm-hmm. and they're not supposed to chase after it. That's the weirdness and the mystery that this introduced me to. But this introduced it to me in the sense that there was like you I, like you said about Poe that there's something you're not supposed to be seeing, mm-hmm. right? Something you that's almost illicit. And in here it's tied to his love of this statue. And so there's something weirdly sexual about it, which fantasy can often go that direction. Instead of the innocence of just the strange mystery of the world, the laughing mystery of the world that Chesterton writes about. Right. And so I went the wrong direction. And then I ended up in Yates and Dostoevsky's kind of in this vein too, actually. Boo. 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 I know. We're not booing Brandon. We're, we're booing we Dostoevsky. Are. Well, yeah, we're booing. We're booing. <laughs> well, yeah. And I would be on this road for a long time. And then my, I was, I was in it in, as an undergrad in college too. My, the final paper I wrote was on the symbolism of Yates. Hmm. And I just thought that I was going to figure it out. And then um, God had other plans, <laughs> <laughs> better plans. Yeah. I mean, one thing that's happened to me with, with a lot of this stuff is, you know, when I was a kid, when I was, when I was young, I, I wanted to know about things like sex and death and all the kinds of stuff that you don't know about. Now that I'm a little older, I know a few more things about some of those things. And so I don't necessarily need fantasy as much to – I still love fantasy. I probably always will. But I don't need fantasy to mitigate all those desires and all those ideas and all those kinds of weird adult things. Um, fantasy has a certain place in your childhood that it doesn't necessarily have – when you get older, I think. Your number three, Jake? My number three is going to take us up to about the age of, what, 10, fifth, fifth sixth grade. <laughs> it's going to be Mark Twain, uh, Tom and Huck. For me, at that point, Tom and Huck were just, they were just fun stories. Huck, to me, is obviously the superior book. but uh, Was it obvious then? Yeah. Yeah, it was. I There were parts of uh, Tom Sawyer that... Uh, just weren't as gripping or whatever, but Huck carried me all the way through. Really loved Huck. Until that ending when it kind of just, as an adult at least, the ending kind of peters out once he gets back and t- Tom comes back into the story. That's kind of lame. He's trapped yeah, well, in the barn and it gets Tom's weird. Yeah. Lame. yeah. Yeah. I, I still haven't read them since. Um, well, we're doing Huck Finn this year, so that'll be interesting. Yeah, it'll be interesting for me to see how it is. But what was uh, cool for me, there were, I guess, a couple of things that were really cool about about those books. One, I grew up in Evansville, Indiana, which is right on the Ohio River. And so, uh, so being in something of a river city, I think, helped. And we used to go down to Mississippi every uh, summer uh, because I have family down there. And so sort of that, the route and the culture of, uh, of the South was sort of a part of my history. So that I resonated some with that, although set along long time back and um but the real thing for me with twain was that that was a point in my life where i was growing uh growing cynical how old would you have been 10 11 and you know i you know i was an insecure kid and and part of how i dealt with that was uh, by figuring out how to tear everybody else around me down either in my mind or you know, just making fun of them and and uh twain was a master at it much better than i ever was and uh, I felt like I was in on the joke with him, and so that's the thing that resonated with me about Twain was his scorn for everybody, or maybe it was my scorn for everybody that I read into Twain, but I still associate the two together, and I I felt like I was in on the joke even when I knew he was making fun of me. I felt like I was in on the joke. I felt I had a special friend in Mark Twain, and he and I he understood me, I understood him, we understood the world together. That everybody else was dumb but us. And so, you know, we were buddies. And uh, Now, we've already heard you in this, the world of the bookening heap a little scorn on Twain and when we were comparing him to our beloved Jane and he insulted her a little bit with his, his, shin, his shin, 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 bone, bone, shin bone comment. Let him be shinned. Let him be shinned, yes. But uh, do, do you still like Twain? I mean, do you think it's what, what, how do you anticipate when we read uh, Huck Finn this year for the bookening? Do you anticipate that it'll still resonate with you? Absolutely. I, I expect I'll still love Huck. But what I don't appreciate about Twain is that he's just a, a scoffer and a mocker. Who, I really do think he just hates everybody mm-hmm. all the time. And he's witty, he's clever, he's funny. 
he's a good writer in that sense. But what he what he does, I just don't like what he does with with uh, with his gifts for writing. I think it's just really lame and juvenile. The thing I feel about scoffers is that they're at their peak. I have no idea when it was that Mark Twain wrote Huck Finn, but. I feel like if you watch scoffers, if you watch comedians that get their material from basically being hateful, they're they're great when they're in their 30s or their 40s. But as they get older, they become more sour and they become less funny. And it's it's the fun goes out of it. You know, when you have a little bit of life's vitality in you and you can't help but just be enjoying some things of of the gifts that God's given you. You could, that can kind of mitigate that bitterness a little bit. But Mark Twain just, just became, you know, when, when you read his late letters and his autobiography and stuff, it's like he became a pretty ugly yeah. guy. And so you have to watch out for that as you read. But I think Huck Finn is a great book. Um, fantastic, yeah. Yeah. I mean, we're going to be a blast talking about it. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to going back and reading it. I actually read it relatively late in life myself, and I had yeah, to listen to it on audiobook because I have a real trouble reading when people write that dialect stuff, like the oh, way that yeah. Jim's. I don't, <laughs> I don't like that in old books when people try to do phonetic dialect. So that was a real big turnoff. I always really wanted to read it, but uh, I finally it was yeah. helpful to listen to it on audiobook. I think I I saw the movie. Was it Jonathan Taylor Thomas <laughs> played Huck Finn? I saw that before I read wow. it. Really? Yeah. <laughs> well, that's all you really need to do is see the Jonathan Taylor Thomas. Yeah. And Wishbone. And Wishbone. Because Wishbone ruined more good books for us. Do <laughs> you know what Wishbone is, Jake? Do you I remember? Kn- I know what Wishbone is, but I never watched Wishbone. Did you intentionally keep yourself from Wishbone because you knew he was going to like – It wasn't that sophisticated. I just didn't appreciate a little PBS dog running around pretending he was the hero of some great – That he was Ulysses. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Oh man, when they have that yeah. little puppet arm pulling back his bowstring so he could shoot Penelope's suitors. That, by the way, I, the Odyssey didn't make my list, but maybe it should have. It was I, close for I me. I thought about it too, actually. We all thought about yeah. the Odyssey. That's funny. Yeah. It was very close. I think probably if I'd read it a little bit more recently, it would be on there. It's just that yeah. it's so long ago. I didn't. I wasn't comfortable with the fact I, that I'd be able to remember enough of it to say anything interesting. But oh man, that. I still remember the images and the scenes oh, and yeah, the cycle. Yeah, yeah. Sure, of course, I, but yep. Well, there's such iconic scenes and images. Mm. That, yeah, I remember being completely in love with it when I read it. Yeah, would have been probably about freshman in high school, maybe. Is that when that, you guys did yeah. it? Just yeah. In the course of your. I think I probably was a little bit earlier. There are certain things when you're doing the homeschool. I was homeschooled through sixth. For fifth grade, and they try to get those classes. There are so certain there are right. certain kind of formulas to that kind of quote unquote classical education. You end up doing some of that stuff earlier, mm-hmm. and you end up doing other stuff a lot later. But yeah, I love the Odyssey when he wreaks havoc on those suitors. Yeah, that's yes, awesome. that's that's the best. Comes back at the end. Yeah, yeah. I still, you know, this is going to sound really, really weird, but the the image of you know he's like. He's being uh, masked by Athena or whatever, right? Yeah. And then when he goes out with the bow and arrow, the the thing that triggers people starting to realize he's something is he like pulls hitches his pants up and people see his thigh muscles or yeah. something like that. Huge they are. <laughs> yeah. I just always thought that was hilarious. Yeah. I think Odysseus was one of the first people, one of the first characters. I didn't quite know what to do with because he was a trickster and he wasn't, I mean, he would do these great feats, but he wasn't just Hercules. You know, he would, he would do things. I wasn't always necessarily okay with everything that Odysseus did. You know, it gave me pause. Why did he have to kill all the suitors? I, I, it made sense once I thought about it, but I did have to think about, you know, he already revealed himself. He already bested it. They're going to have to get out. Why slaughter these guys? His only virtue is that he went, I mean, he wins. Right. I mean, the virtue that's set forth is that he wins. He yep. always wins. Right. He doesn't die. He doesn't die a noble death in Troy like he probably like everybody else did. He's clever. He's not. Yeah. Faithful. Well, that's what's. No, he's not faithful, but he sure does expect his wife to be. Yeah. <laughs> and then women hate the end when he just he go he's up and he's gone again as soon as. That's right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's. I mean, what resonates with Odysseus is that exactly that though it's. It's you can you you can't put yourself in the shoes of Hercules. You don't have the strength of ten men, you know. But maybe you can be as clever as Odysseus. Maybe you can you know see the way that he manages to best the Cyclops or whatever, and think, yeah, you know, if I were, yeah, I can't be Achilles, but right, right. 
especially if I have a bunch of guys that follow me around and die left and right <laughs> doing my bidding. <laughs> I always felt bad for Odysseus's men. <laughs> They're the ones that have to like, you know, end up getting throwing themselves overboard with the sirens and right. meanwhile Odysseus is tied up with wax in his ears and, <laughs> and they get eaten by the sirens. You do not it's not a good job to be one of Odysseus's cronies. No, it's yeah. But those were the kinds of moral complexities that uh, I engaged with by reading the yeah. Odyssey. So my book number three was a book that's cheating a little bit because I didn't actually read the full unexpurgated version of this until I was an adult. And I didn't even realize that I was reading a version of this when I was a kid because the book that I read was called something like King Arthur and His Knights. And I read several different versions of of the story. But when I eventually read La Morte d'Arthur, is that how it's pronounced, Brandon? I don't want to yeah. say it wrong the whole time. La Morte d'Arthur. La Morte d'Arthur. When I La read La Morte d'Arthur <laughs> about old D'Arthur and his mort, I realized that I'd been reading the story my whole life and been reading it in Mallory's words, just with some of the naughty bits cut out, basically. So... My pick for number three is La Morte d'Arthur and just the the legends of the round table, specifically the way that Mallory told, tells them. I've read – I love King Arthur stories. I've read just about everything. I mean I haven't read like the Mists of Avalon and some of the dumb meta postmodern stuff. But I've read the greatest meta King Arthur story, which is The Once and Future King by uh, T.E. White. I've read Tennyson – but Mallory's the best of the Arthurs because it's just, like I say in you know, one of the posts on warhornmedia.com where I talk a little bit about this book, it's like reading newspaper dispatches from from some enchanted England. You're just getting these great stories and the way they're, you know, it's just like, and then this guy clove this guy's skull and then he went into the woods and this thing happened with the witch. And you're really just getting the tip of the iceberg. You know, there's not a lot in the way of psychological realism or description or anything but it's all it has that powerful fairy tale quality that that Brandon was talking about and that you guys were talking about with some of the other the books earlier on where it just resonates with you and that's one that still does resonate with me yeah. and there are things in it that I get as an adult you know like Lancelot and Guinevere went way over my head and things like that I don't know what to say about it besides that I just love I love that story. I love King Arthur. I love Lancelot and all his weakness. I love yep. Gawain. I mean, I yeah, love those guys. Yeah. I never have read Le Morte d'Arthur, but yeah, as a kid, all of the Arthur stories, I got them into me however I could find them. Mm-hmm. They were just really attractive. That and Robin Hood, too. Yep. I'd find any book with those characters and, and, and just get lost in it. I could just spend hours reading a big tome of stories about King Arthur. I've lost some of it now, but I knew all the lore. I knew what Morgan Le Fay did, when to who, and the magical wow. cloak that shriveled up the this girl. And uh, I mean, yeah. just all that stuff has stuck with me for me it's it is the last two books of the book especially the search for the grail and then the final collapse of the house of arthur Mm -hmm. and it had a lot of the high tragedy that i would come to love in shakespeare and stuff you would find in arthur the betrayal that's there the inevitability of the betrayal the fact that arthur really i guess in the sense of tragedy he's not a tragic hero He's just, he was, he was betrayed. He was a good king and he was betrayed. And the um, fallout of that, the way that Mallory tells the story at the end, it's... It's powerful. It's powerful, yeah. Well, the whole story, and I didn't, I didn't know that this was something that spoke to me as a kid. I, I had to discover this more as an adult, but I think it always spoke to me. The sense of loss in the Camelot stories, the sense of something good that was established yeah. and then got destroyed, the sense of something just beyond your reach, something that's bright and shining and you're obscured by the mists of your own sin, I guess, mm-hmm. and of other people's and you just can't quite get there. You know, the idea of the grail being taken yeah. from England, not to return because people didn't deserve it. We are living in a world that's broken. We only have a little glimpse of what it could be right now through a mere darkly. And that's what I think something like Mallory gets at. Yeah, he shows us a political world and knights and bravery that could have been something beautiful for Britain. And then it was broken by what we do all the time, betrayal, lust, fear, cowardice. 
the idea that there's this intersection between the pagan world and the Christian world, and Arthur is bringing, you know, they don't say it in so many words, but he's creating this this Christian kingdom, and then it's destroyed by by betrayal. Yeah, you get a lot of that with Beowulf too, mm-hmm. and um, Beowulf, Beowulf has a similar a runner up for sure. Yeah. yeah, not to spoil anything, but you know, Beowulf at the end, the only one who will stand with him is is it Wiglaf or the Wolf? I forget what the name of that the one guy is. though. He's the only yeah. soldier who will stand with Beowulf at the end. All the other men flee, and so you have that sense. Here with Arthur, everyone flees to Lancelot, and they betray Arthur, and then Mordred comes. Mm -hmm. And just the heartbreak of that, but then also the hope there is with Arthur's promised return and Avalon and the beauty of the court. Yeah, that's my favorite phrase in all of literature is the once and future king. The fact that that's written on his gravestone is the coolest Mm -hmm. thing in the world. There's a lot there for a young boy about authority and kingship that the Lord of the Rings kind of did it as well. Sure, sure. But Arthur did it first. And best. I think Mallory still holds up. Yeah. And also just another thing for me was the camaraderie and Mm -hmm. and the fellowship of men who go out and fight together, the bonds that that creates. So when they break the court up so they can all go pursue the grail, there's the whole speech that Arthur gives about how those were the good times. Those are the best times. And they're never going to happen again right. because all his men are now there leaving him. And he knows it's inevitable and it has to happen. But there's a sweetness and a sadness there with what Arthur's saying about the fact that his brothers have now left him. Mm-hmm. And he knows that that fellowship is broken because, you know, I, when, when did you read these? As a kid. I As mean, kid, I, yeah. eight, nine, all through my childhood and yeah. then my teenage years. And then when I was in my 20s, I, I read the actual Lamorte yeah. to Arthur, you know. Because I read Mallory in a class when I was about 14 or 15. Mm-hmm. be a good age to read it. Yeah. Because you're just then growing into the sense that friends can be more than, you know, there's like brotherhood and mm-hmm. friendship that's deeper than just friendship. And I didn't get that with sports because I didn't really play sports. And it's something I wished I had done so I could have had that from there. Fantastic stories. And, and, and they do reward. That's one that's the opposite of Poe. You know, every time I go back to it, there's something new to discover, something new to understand. Yeah. Well, the ability to go back to a book over and over again is a good test as to whether or not it was worth reading in the first place. I can't remember. Maybe it was Coleridge or some one of those romantic poets. He said that all he really needed was the Bible and Milton. Mm-hmm. Everything else he had ever read wasn't worth reading twice. I knew a professor who all he ever read was Shakespeare. You know, there's some snooty <laughs> idiocy there, but there is, like every every snooty idiocy, it twists some truth. Mm-hmm. The Booketing was written and produced today by Nathan Alberson, me. It was performed by Nathan Alberson, Brandon Chastine, and Jacob Menzel. For more interesting and wonderful content, please be sure to visit our website, www.warhornmedia.com. You have thoughts or feedback on this latest episode, get at us on Twitter. At Nathan Albers, or no, what am I? At Not Famous Nathan, or... At Jacob Minsel. And Brandon doesn't have a Twitter. Because he's lame. He's lame. You can get at him on the Facebook. The Facebook. Actually, don't go to the Facebook, (laughs) unless you're a Harvard man, or whoever still has the Facebook. Um, (laughs) Stay tuned next week for when we will do part two of... What you just heard, 